been very kind to my wife and I, and Calvin especially. I know he's the, the hot commodity, so I've learned my place now that we have him around. Um, but I, I read a story, uh, it's one of my favorite stories I came across, of a couple named Mark and Brenda, and they were from Missouri and had lived there most of their life, and they were nearing retirement, and so they are starting to think about where they wanted to live and settle down, and so they had kids in Florida, and so they went out, and they knew they wanted to be close to them, and they found a nice plot of land that was right on the beach, okay, and so they, they bought it, and they started talking to contractors and drawing up plans for a house, and finally getting, you know, really, now we'll get to build our dream home, and they'd saved a lot, and they, you know, so they ended up spending over, you know, $700,000 to just get their perfect dream home just right there on the water where they could see it from their porch, and they could just walk out onto the sand, and there's not really anybody around, and so they spent all this time, you know, kind of over the months, maybe some of you have experienced this and some of the ups and downs that can go with it. But everything seemed to be kind of going all right. Everything was tracking. They were moving kind of at a good pace. And they had the the study that they needed. And they had all the extra rooms for their grandkids. And they were just looking at it from afar because they weren't going to go down there all the time. But it was finally done. And so they, they pack up and they head down from Missouri and pack their bags and get there. And they pull up and they see the house. And the house looks just like they dreamed, just like the plans. And it's all perfect. Except there was just one small problem. So as they look, and they look at the house, and it looks really good, but then they kind of look around, and they start looking around at the land, and they realize, and now their face just drops, and they start getting really upset, because they realize that they actually built the house on the wrong plot of land. So they actually built it on the house that they owned, they built it on their neighbor's land. So it's a really good neighborly gift, if you're looking for something you can do. But, you know, and so sometimes... Hopefully not something like that happens, but life can be like that for us, right? Where you have all your plans, you can spend months, you can spend weeks, you can spend lots of time heading a certain direction, thinking that everything's going the way that you hoped it would, and then all of a sudden, everything can just blow up in your face. All of a sudden, the plans and everything you worked so hard for doesn't seem to come to fruition. You know, that promotion that seemed like you were promised, that you were working so hard toward, that work ends up going to somebody else and they pass you over. Or you, you start a new job and you think it's going to be something and then all of a sudden it turns into something else. Or you were hoping and you were dreaming your kids would kind of turn out a certain way and they start making different decisions. There's, you know, we, we all know how life can be. That's why we kind of have that saying, you know, sometimes life just happens. That's what it is to be human. Your plans will fall apart. And so the central question we're going to see this morning that I want us all to wrestle with and we're going to look at the life of David here if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. In chapter 21, and we're just going to wrestle with this question of what do you do when life doesn't go as planned? What do you do when life doesn't go as planned? When everything starts falling apart, when promises aren't kept, when when you thought this was going to be how it is, and now all of a sudden it's something completely different, what do you do and how do you react? And so what we're going to see here is we're going to see that in David's life, as we read this chapter, that man, life is not going how he thought it was going to turn out. I don't, some of you or maybe more familiar with the story of David than others. This is a little different passage we're going to look at than you might be familiar with, but just to give you some context for this, as David as a young man was promised, the, the prophet Samuel came and anointed him and said, you, you're going to be the next king. Because this other king, you know, he's he's blown it, he's really messed up, you know, he's not following the Lord after the way that he needs to, and so we need a new one, so it's going to be you. You're the guy. And so years have gone by, right? I mean, that's that's a pretty big problem. I would hold on to that one. I'm going to be king. That 
That sounds pretty good. I would like to be king. I would like to be in charge. The king doesn't answer to anybody. Right? And so he's been promised this, and stuff is stuff after that went pretty well. He killed Goliath. Okay? Killed the giant, the Philistine, who was attacking and harassing their people. So now he's a hero. People are singing his praises. They're singing songs about him. In fact, some of their songs are saying, well, I mean, Saul's pretty good, but David's a lot better. Don't you guys think David's a lot better? Yeah, David's pretty awesome. And now he's he's ended up marrying Saul's daughter, so he's he's in the family. His best friend is the king's son, Jonathan. So now they're like he is just as close as you can get. He can taste it, right? Everything seems to be going well. He's in the court. He's got the the wife that he needs. He's, his best friend is the would be heir. So I mean, he can see how okay. I mean, he can start to plan out. I see how this is going to go. I see how I'm going to get there. I see how I'm going to be king. But Saul turns on him and tries to kill him, and now David is finding himself on the run in exile. He's having to flee everything that he's known, and it looks like everything is just crumbling before him. And so this is where we find David. We find him where he thinks it's all going one way, it looks like it's all going one way, and now he's probably wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? I thought you said I was going to be king. Me running in exile doesn't seem like part of the plan. And so I'm going to go ahead, I'm just going to read through um, this whole chapter in 21. It's only 15 verses, so I'll read through it all, and then we'll uh, we'll start to unpack it. And we see in 21 verse 1, And then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, and trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter to which I send you, in which I have charged you. And I made an appointment for the young man for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or, you know, whatever's here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go out on an expedition. The vessels of young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more when... How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be taken, to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. But now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Diog the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And David said to Ahimelech, Have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons, because the king's business requires haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down at the valley of Elah, behold, it's here, it's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that, give it to me. And David rose and he fled that day from Saul and he went to Achish, the, game, the king of Gath. And he said to the servants of Achish, said to him, you know, isn't this not David, the king of the land? Don't they sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his tens thousands. And David took these words to heart and he was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior from before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door and on the gate and let a spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, the man you see here is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come to my house? And so we see how David, so he's on, he's on the run, 
And he, he pops up here and he is just trembling and he's filled with fear. Right? And so that's an understandable emotion. Okay, we would all kind of feel that way if the king tried to kill us and we knew he wanted to kill us and we knew he was hot on our tail and he was trying to get us. And now David, he's an outlaw and this isn't what God said would happen and so he's kind of freaking out and man, I can, I can understand that because I'm kind of a neurotic planner. Um, my wife will let you know this about me, you know, and most mornings, uh, at some point I'll wake up and I'll say, okay baby, you know, what are your, what are your hopes and dreams for today? That, that might sound really nice to you, but she knows what that means. What that means is, okay, why don't you tell me everything you want to do so I can start fitting it in my head for the plan because if you add something else to it, I'm going to be out of whack and it's going to ruin the day. So I need to know right now. Okay? And it's one of the first things I ask her in the morning. She'll tell you, right? And, cause I don't like it when things don't go according to plan. Okay? That's why we have plans. So that I know what's going to happen. And I need to know everything I'll have so I can put it in the plan. Cause when we have the plan, the day will go well. Right? And I need that, but what happens, and why I love planning is because planning gives me the illusion that I have control over the day. Okay? It gives me the illusion that this day is going to turn out how I want because I've planned for it. Okay? I've planned for all the, the different things that are going to happen and everything that could go wrong. But you know, having a one-year-old, Calvin does this to me often, he doesn't like to cooperate with the plan. Okay, I try to tell him, no, 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 the plan is you're taking a nap right now. This, I have set aside two hours for your nap, so you, it's time for you to nap. And yesterday, he didn't cooperate with the plan. I was trying to tell him, but it's, it doesn't work, right? Sometimes our plans just fall apart. And so what do you do? What we see David does, and this is interesting how David responds. And, and this passage is, is fascinating because a lot of commentators and people who look at it, like David actually, he lies here several times. There are three separate times here that David just lies about what's going on. And, and some people wrestle with it because we go, okay, he's lying. Well, what do, what do we do with that? Is that, is that good that he's lying? Is that bad? I mean, lies are bad, so that seems like that would be bad. And I think that's bad. But I mean, we can, we'll, you see if you agree with me as we work through it, and you're just going to get some of my opinion here. But right at the beginning where he says, you know, the priest said, David, what are you doing here? Like, you're alone. Like, you're clearly, you know, freaking out a little bit. This is unusual. What's going on? He says, oh, well, you know, don't worry about it. You know, in, in verse 2, the king has given me, you know, charged me with the matter. He says, don't let anybody know what you're doing. And don't let anybody know what I've got for you. So, super secret mission. And we're like, super top secret, king himself. Can't tell you anything about it, but it's really, really important. So uh, I need you to hand over some food. And he's suspicious, obviously, because that's that's kind of weird. That doesn't sound right. What are you doing? And so he he asks David asks for these five bread or for some bread because he doesn't have any food because he's on the run. And so what the priest says here, and this is kind of this is a, a subtle rebuke or a subtle chance where David gets to to fess up and tell the truth, where he said, "Okay, well, you know, I've got nothing here but the holy bread." But the holy bread. And so then they kind of have this back and forth that's kind of, you know, it's kind of weird. It's like, well, you know, you need to remove yourselves from when. And so he's talking about the Levitical law here. And he's saying, okay, David, so like this bread is really only supposed to be for the priests. But you're allowed to have, I mean, you know, we understand the spirit of the law. Like you can have this if you're really in serious danger because you need it to stay alive as long as like you're really, you're right with God. So you're telling me you're, you're right with God now. And David just doubles down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Definitely, we're good. Don't worry about it. Why don't you hand that over? 
And so what we see here in your in your first um, your first blank, if you you like to take notes or if you'd like to, is that when when difficulty comes, when life doesn't go how we thought, we really have two choices: is we can either trust in our own abilities or we can trust in God's faithfulness. Is that we can trust in our own abilities or we can trust in God's faithfulness? And what we see David doing here is David is starting to trust in his own ability. Okay, David is thinking that, okay, I, I know how I can get out of this, alright, I'm gonna tell him, like, he probably doesn't know yet, so I'm gonna tell him that I'm on the super secret mission, and he's gonna give me, he's gonna give me this food, and it's gonna be what I gotta have. And so he's just going for the safer option in his mind, because there's sometimes that, you know, telling the truth can be risky. Right, there are times that just fessing up, like, ah, I don't really know what's gonna happen. I don't know how he's gonna respond if I tell him, well, Saul said he's going to kill me, and so now I'm on the run, and I got nothing with me. Give me any food? Or here, when he he gives them, he says, "Well, we only have this holy bread." So this is David's. This is God, because God does this often to us. As soon as we start taking steps out of His plan, He'll kind of nudge us or give us a little moment where we can fess up. And so that's what He's saying. Is again, He's saying, "Okay, David, like, do you want to do you want to come clean here?" And so David has the choice. Well, okay, here. You know what? You caught me. I did just lie to you. I need to get right with God, but I really do need this. And he has no idea how the priest is going to respond. But what David does in this moment is he doesn't tell the priest the truth because he really doesn't trust God with the truth. Because he's really unsure how this is going to turn out. Because, well, God, I thought you had this under control, but now this is all blowing up. So you want me to, you want me to do the right thing here again? I don't know. And our society, you know, our society is big believers in moral relativism, right? You know, well, what works for you works for you, works for me works for me, kind of, that's fine, we'll just all figure it out, or, well, as long as we don't hurt anybody in the end. Or, you know, we can just believe, well, you know, ends justify the means, as long as things turn out good, it doesn't really matter how we get there, as long as nobody's hurt, as long as we're happy in the end. Well, as believers, as Christians, we're supposed to reject that, right? But we know that God's in control of the ends. We know that God is going to work things out. We know that he is faithful. David should know that he's faithful. God didn't come to him and say, you know, I take it back. I actually didn't mean that promise I told you about you being king. But if he really controls the ends, okay, what he, God doesn't need us to sin in the means to make it happen. Okay, God doesn't need David to lie. He doesn't need David to manipulate. He doesn't need David to get his hands down in the mud and mess up and get murky and start doing weird things politically to, to make himself king. God doesn't need that. He just needs David to trust him. He doesn't need him to try and figure it out on his own. And some of two we see here, and so it mentions these five loaves of bread. Right? And a lot of times in Scripture when you see, there are de- there's not always lots of details, but sometimes when there are, you need, we should stop and look and go, okay, why did he say it there? Why does it say five loaves? Because I don't, there's nothing in here by accident, right? Okay, this isn't giving us a very detailed play-by-play. We don't see exactly what David's wearing. We don't see what time of day on the dot or any of those things, right? Because we don't need those to understand what God's trying to teach us. But part of why I think is that there's five loaves here is I think that's a subtle callback to the five stones that David had when he defeated Goliath. I think. Because I've also wondered, why are those five stones there? Why does it, He only uses one. Why does it mention five? I don't know. That's, that's what I think. And I think that's here too because we see Goliath is really just all over this passage. 
all over it, over and over again. They're just reminders to God's past faithfulness in the life of David. And we see that when he then asks for a weapon. He says, okay, like I really, you know, do you guys go in eight? He says, do you have a spear or a sword at hand? Like I didn't bring any. And he lies again, you know, because the king told me, this is quick. Like you, this super secret mission, I need you to get this done fast as possible. So I just didn't have time to get my weapons. And the priest says, well, you know, we've only got one. And it's Goliath's sword, actually. Do you remember Goliath? You'd think David would remember Goliath, right? I would. We do. And I'm sure he does. But again, like we just see, we see God just pressing and just showing up over and over, even in the midst of probably one of the worst days of David's life. We see God showing up again with just a little nudge. Okay, maybe that five, the five loaves, maybe that wasn't a big enough nudge. Here, I'm going to nudge you a little harder. Here's Goliath's sword that you could barely pick up. Do you remember the last time you faced this giant evil and this huge insurmountable enemy that you didn't think that you could be saved with and you beat him with just five stones? Here, just as God was faithful before, he will be faithful again. And that's what I think God is trying to do. He's trying to tell like, you don't have to worry, but like, I still have you. I've been faithful in the past. I will be faithful again. I don't need you to use your own abilities to try and finagle this out. But David just says, oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, there's nothing like that. That's great. Okay, here we go. And he's off down the road. In the Old Testament, it's it's filled and filled with stories of just God's faithfulness and God's faithfulness to his people. And it's filled and filled with stories of them being forgetful. Right? You notice that, like, wow, how do they just forget? And they're always supposed to put up rocks and pile them memorial stones and say, hey, when your kids see this, you tell them about what I did here with Moses. And, hey, you, you write this on your door so you can see and you can tell them about how we took you over the Red Sea. And, hey, do all these, um, all these festivals and these feasts and do all these things so we can see it. And, man, God, they just forget over and over and over and over and over again. And the disciples forget over and over and over again. One of my favorite ones is right after God, Jesus feeds the 5,000, they get in a boat and they talk about some bread and they're like, wow, we're out of food. Man, I think we're going to starve. Thanks, Jesus. And Jesus is like, what are you guys doing? Do you not? I just, that's one of my favorite ones too. Jesus says, and how many were there? How much do we have? Oh, you know, we got like four. Hey, so how much did we have when I fed the 5,000? Like 12. How much did we have over? Oh, like a ton of baskets, you know, just baskets and baskets full of food because you made so much. Do you guys get it? They're like, no, we're, we're starving here, Jesus. What are you doing? You know, but just like the disciples, just like David, all the time we forget about God's past faithfulness. All the time we forget about it. Because when the next circumstance comes, when the next thing comes and it's in our face, and the pain seeps in when somebody that we love dies, when we lose a job, when stuff doesn't turn out how we thought, when that discomfort, when that real pain and suffering hits us in the face, we can just forget about God's past faithfulness. Because some in the back of our minds, we start to think, well, I, I know he did that last time, but do you think he could do it again? Well, I, I know before he helped me with Goliath, but I mean, that was a while ago, and that was really just one guy, and kind of got lucky, maybe just got lucky with the rock, but now this is a king, and his whole army's behind me, and I've got, I just, I don't know if you can do this one. Or maybe, you know, you were really praying hard for something, and you were praying and praying, and hoping and hoping and hoping, and, and finally God answers it, and he answers your prayer, and you're just so excited, and you call everybody and tell them, hey, you remember how you've been praying for this for me for years? Like, oh, I can't believe God did that. That's so awesome. 
Then the next thing comes and we, we, we forget. And we're right back at the beginning. Because there's new fears, there's new things. And so what we have, and we have that same choice every time something happens, is what are we going to do? Are we going to trust in God's faithfulness and the way he's been faithful in the past and the way that he's been faithful to everyone through this book and the way that he will be faithful to us in the end? Or are we going to trust in our own abilities that, nah, maybe God really needs me to figure this one out on my own? Maybe I just need to put my elbow into it, get some muscle grease. Maybe I can make this happen. And so we see in David and next... In, in verse 10, and so he flees and he ends up before this king and the king of Gath. Which, if you know Gath again, another reminder of Goliath, that is Goliath's hometown. Okay, they're just reminders of God's past faithfulness all and over. God, Jesus is just trying to beat David in the head over with this. And he shows up, and what's fascinating is right when he shows up, what does the, the servant say? Like, hey, so isn't this David the king of the land? Okay, so here we have foreign people outside of God's chosen people in Israel acknowledging and mentioning and reminding David of God's faithful promise to him. Oh, isn't this the guy that God promised was going to be like the king of there? And so David's response to that, and again hearing more of it, we have, you know, we have just this foreign king doing this is, oh gosh, that's really scary. Freaks out. And so his response is to just start acting crazy and just start spitting down his beard. I don't really like getting food and junk in my beard, but he just tries to just spit in it and just start chewing on stuff and writing on things like a crazy person because he, you know, I don't know what makes you do that. That's clearly desperation would make you do that. Right, and you you look back and think, where where was David before Goliath, and now where we see him here? And what makes you do that is this is I do not think that David here is acting like somebody that really trusts God and trusts his faithfulness. That doesn't seem like it to me. And so often, like David, we can do the same thing where we can try and just take matters into our own hands. We think that you know, I really think I just have to to do this, or you know, I know this isn't really right for me to to talk this way about this person, but I don't think God's getting the message here. This doesn't seem to be justice, so I think I really need to do this. I think I need to say this to somebody. Man, I really kind of need to backstab them just just a little bit because that's really what God wants is for justice to be done here, and it doesn't seem like he's doing it, so I think that I'm going to have to take care of this on my own. Right? That's what we can do. That's what we can talk ourselves into. And even if we want to admit that out loud, we can act that way. But God doesn't need us. God never needs us to sin in order to accomplish His plan. He never needs us to do that. He doesn't need our own ability in order to be faithful. Now, when we when we do it, He can make it happen anyway because we can't mess it up. But He doesn't need us to. And what we see here in your in your second point is that man, our sin does not stop God's pursuit. That our sin doesn't stop God pursuing us. And we see that all throughout this passage over and over. Every single time David lies, it's almost immediately followed up with God nudging him again and reminding him of his faithfulness. It's We have three separate times that he lies and he deceives people and he's just out of fear. So this isn't, I don't think this looks like somebody who trusts God. And man, he David just really messes this up. He just really blows it. 
And I think it, it's clear, and we see, um, it, if you skip later, I'm not going to read the, the whole thing, but in, in chapter 22, Saul shows up, and he shows up to where the priests were at Nob, and he kind of asks what's going on, and right at the end, it ends up, every single one of the priests are killed. And we see that in 18, the 85 persons, 85 priests, um, were slaughtered, and 19, the whole city, um, Saul kills everybody there. Men, women, children, infant, all the oxes, donkey, sheep. He just kills everything. And in 22, David says to, to some of the, to these people that have gathered up to him, gathered around, and he kind of admits, you know, I knew when I saw Dag the Automite was there, or Diog. I don't know how to say that. I'm just guessing. Um, he said, I knew when I saw him that he would tell Saul, and I have occasioned the death of every person in that house. And so David's action, David trying to take things in his own hands, ends in the death of 85 priests in a whole village. And his kind of repentance and acknowledgement of that there, 22, I I think informs the way he was acting the rest of the chapter in 21. He knew this is going to end so poorly, but I I, I think maybe maybe I can get myself out of this. Well, it's amazing what God does. Okay, if we're God, if I'm in charge, I'm saying, all right, this is a bad decision. Okay, clearly this David guy, eh, none of he's really a man after God's own heart, maybe like 25%. Like, sure, we can find somebody better than this, I think. Okay, this is not great. But God doesn't throw David away and go find somebody else. Okay, God doesn't say, well, you know, I really want, man, I was rooting for you, David, but, ugh, you blew it, sorry. Next. Go find someone else. He sticks with him and he gives him chance after chance in this chapter of nudging him and nudging him and nudging him and he's going to give him more chance. And he's going to spend the next couple of years just in the wilderness wandering and I think some of that too is because he really blew it here and he's got to take time and he's got to learn to trust God again and to be faithful. But God is still faithful. Even when we are faithless, He is faithful. Even when we sin, and we sin horrifically, I don't think, well, I don't know y'all very well, but I'm pretty sure none of you have made some decisions that led to the death of an entire village, I don't think, especially some sinful decisions. If you have, please tell me. That would be important information to know. Um, but like that's, that's really significant. That's a deep sin. That's a horrible thing. God doesn't stop pursuing David. He's still faithful even when we blow it in the biggest ways imaginable. You, you think of, because you think of some of the worst things that you've done. You think of that thing that you're really ashamed of. You think of that thing that you hope that nobody knows, or that thing that you shove deep down that you don't want anyone to ask about, that you hope nobody knows about. Okay, God knows that and He loves you and He's pursuing us anyway. And he knew it before he sent his son to die. He saw that you would do that, and he still said, you know what, I love them anyway, and I want them to come be my son. I want them to come be my daughter. I want them in my family. There's nothing that they can do to push me away. Because God doesn't throw away his people. And his promises, his promise to David to be king, it's not dependent on how awesome he is. Okay, because David really kind of stinks. He's kind of not a great person throughout the... The whole thing, right? There's lots of, he's, this isn't, we're not done with his big mistakes, okay? 
There are many more if you read through First and Second Samuel. There's a lot more things that David is going to do that really, really blow it. Sometimes I was like, man, it seems like David's worse than Saul. I don't know what God was talking about because Saul just kind of blew it once, but David seems to do it Excuse me, over and over and over again. But God's promises and his goodness, it's not dependent on how awesome we are. Okay? It's just dependent on how awesome he is. And he uses and he chooses people just because of his grace. He doesn't pick the best people in the world. He doesn't pick the most qualified, the best looking, the people with the biggest talent, the people who have the most money. He goes after the weak. He goes after the little. He goes after the people who screw up over and over and over again. And he says, them, I want them. I love them. I'm not giving up on them. And he continues and continues to pursue. The Old Testament is just filled with people who blow it over and over again. And God just pours out his grace on them. And he continues to see them. Grace doesn't, it doesn't just show up once we get to the New Testament with Jesus. Okay? I think some people really miss that. And even we can miss that if we're not reading the Old Testament closely. I think David's life is filled with grace. And it's filled with God showing him grace and pursuing him over and over. Now, now God, our sin doesn't stop God pursuing us, but I, I think we do need to, to be careful here. Um, is because that doesn't mean everything's always going to work out great for us like it did for David. Okay, David does end up king, right? God promised him that. It ends up good. Okay, God hasn't promised me to be king of anywhere. I don't know about you. Maybe he made that promise to you. That's that's great. I hope that works out. But a lot of the times, okay, life will not turn out with us being in charge of everything, being in charge of a nation. It might not end up you being... A, the top job that you can get, or you having all the money that you could wish for, or your kid having, even having children, or your kids turning out the way that you wish. Oftentimes life won't go that way. But God is faithful. He's faithful even when it doesn't look like it. Even when life isn't turning out the way that we wish. Even how David is like, man, God, this doesn't look like... This doesn't look like your faithfulness, but God is faithful and he's still right there in the midst of it. He's not done with anyone in this room, no matter how far from him you are, how close you are. And he doesn't throw us away and he hasn't forgotten about us. So even when life doesn't go how we wish, he's still right there pulling us, begging us to be close. And he'll be there even if it never gets better on the outside. He is always, always faithful. His faithfulness doesn't look like how we wish it would all the time. You can ask David, his faithfulness doesn't look like how we wish it did here. And point number three, um, if you're keeping notes, is, is Jesus took the hard path. Is Jesus took the hard path. And I find so much comfort in knowing that in that, okay, sometimes life isn't going to turn out how I wish it would. Some people, their life is filled with pain and with suffering and with death and sickness, and that's kind of it. And that doesn't sound fun. I don't want to sign up for that. I don't know if I want to worship a God who lets that happen. We can think that. But I love the fact that Jesus took that hard path himself. Okay, he doesn't ask us to do things that he hasn't done on his own. That the plans of Jesus, they seem incredibly foolish to the world. 
Because when everything is going wrong, like it's all going wrong for David here, when everything falls apart in our lives, the first thing we can just do, and it's a deeply human question, is just why? Why, why, why? God, why would you let this happen? Why would you take them? Why would you let me lose my job? Why would you not let us have children? Why are they getting everything? And they clearly don't know you. They definitely don't act like they love you. But man, everything is working out for them and nothing is working out for me. Why would you do this? Why is David on the run? God, why aren't you letting me be king? Saul is a terrible person. He's a terrible king. Why don't you just let me do it? Why would you do that, God? And most of the time, Jesus doesn't tell us. But what I find it so comforting is that Jesus, of all the plans that he could have come, and all the ways he could have come as Messiah, right? Because that's the promise. You read through the Old Testament, and all of it is saying, okay, there will be a king who is coming to save you. And he's coming to save you and bring peace and prosperity. He's going to crush all of your enemies. He's going to deliver you from sin. He's going to bring just unending peace and joy. So they're sitting there. They're under the Roman Empire. They're occupied. I mean, well, just wait till wait till the Messiah comes. He's really going to bring this. But Jesus didn't do that yet. In his first coming, he just came to save us from our sin and to set us from what we truly needed to be set free from. Now, he will come later, and he will redeem it. He will crush all of our enemies. He will bring lasting peace. He will bring judgment to all things. But that's not what he did the first time. Instead of coming as the conquering hero and as the king, he came just riding a donkey, and he came as a homeless Palestinian Jew who wandered and walked around everywhere, hanging out with lepers and tax collectors and sinners and healing the sick. And then he died a brutal, gross death on the cross. The most painful way that you could have died. That's not how I would have chosen to do it. Okay, well, I got to die. Let's make it quick. Okay, quickest one we can get. That's not what the God of the universe decided to do. And he went willingly to his death. And he's, he's there and he's being questioned by men as they're slapping him. Oh, who hit you? And they're mocking him. Men who he formed in the womb. And who he knows their deepest secrets. He, and if it's me, I'd, I'd let him have it because, no, that's just me. But no, he, he endures it. And his plan isn't what we would have thought. But that's the way Jesus works, is that Jesus so often just does things that look foolish to the world. He doesn't operate like we do. He doesn't follow my plan most of the time. He doesn't draw plans like we do. And most of the time he seems to do it just to show off his power and his awesomeness. So, man, how did that happen? Only Jesus could have done that. How these 12 fairly uneducated people become apostles and change the world and now Christianity has billions of followers and lasted all these years after following around a homeless man. Well, just because of Jesus and God, that's the only way that could happen. It couldn't happen just because we're awesome. It couldn't happen just because we're really brilliant, just because somebody really smart made this up. Only God could do this. Only God can do that. And the gospel is, is a beautiful stumbling block because it just doesn't make sense to the world and that's part of its beauty of I mean, why doesn't God just throw David away why doesn't he throw me away because I've blown it a bunch I'm going to blow it again I'm going to keep blowing it but God doesn't do that just because he loves us and why does he love us I don't know I have no idea but I'm so glad he does I'm so glad that he does and I'm so glad that he continues to pursue us 
And, and so part of the application for us in this is that all of us are, we need to trust God when it all falls apart. That when life falls apart, when things aren't going how we wish that they would, when things are seem to be coming off the rails, that we need to trust the Jesus who endured the hard path himself. That we need to trust in the God who submitted and humbled himself to be killed by his own creation so that he could redeem them from the giant mess they made themselves. And he did that. And that God is faithful. We can trust that God. We can trust that God who said he was coming and it was hundreds of years, 400 years of silence in between the last time one of the prophets spoke before he showed up. He didn't forget. He's faithful. We can trust that that God's coming again even though it's been 2,000 years since he was here before. He's still coming. We need to make sure that man, we let go of just trying to take control over the situation. Thinking that, you know what, okay, if I just come up with a better plan, I think I can get my life back on track. Okay, maybe if I just do blank, you fill in the blank, whatever that is. If I could just make this work, then maybe I could, I could get out of this. I could make life turn out the way that I thought. We have to be able to just, just let go and turn it over to God. Not that we just sit there and do nothing, but if we're like David trying to manipulate and just trust in our own abilities and thinking, I can get myself out of this, we're going to be mistaken. You know, there was a, one of the larger times that in my own life that this worked out that I needed to take a step in faith is we were, we were serving at a church. Um, I, was, I was on staff. I was just an intern at a really big mega church in Dallas um, with just tens of thousands of people and just kind of, you know, being a cog in the wheel. Um, and there were, there were a lot of things there that kind of, when it was coming to the end, because I committed to serving a year and then they were starting to talk like, okay, well, you know, Want you to stay here three more years till you finish seminary at Dallas. Um, I didn't have to, and so we, my wife and I, were just wrestling with, okay, what do we do? Do we stay here? Do we not? And deep down, I knew God was telling us not to stay there. Um, I knew that deep down, also because my wife was telling me very clearly, like we are not supposed to be here. <laughs> like you, like we, and she was so right. And she's like, our marriage is not going to last if we're here. Because of the way that they're working and the way that we're treating it, this is just, this is not right. We have to we have to leave. And it was so hard for me because, well, I know this. I know this is terrible. I know this is rough. I know they're really not treating us well. But this is a big name church. I mean, if we stay here and we just suffer these next three years, like man, that's going to be on my resume. And then well, I'm looking at all the guys who did that, and I'm looking at where they ended up. They ended up in some big places and over there. Like if we just Stay here, I know God will take care of us and we'll be fine. But if we leave, and I don't know what in the world we're going to do for a job, I don't know, I don't know if anyone's going to, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know if God can take care of us if we do that. And that was my very real wrestling. And it sounds so so dumb, and that, that's often how it works though when you talk things out with other people, but when you're in the midst of it, when it's in your own situation, and you're wrestling with it, it's much harder. And so that was us of having to think, ah, okay. All right, God, we'll trust you. And so I left. I ended up working on a laundry truck for three years and did rich kids' laundry. So that was super great. And they're sitting there. There were many times it was hard to trust God. I think, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? And you know, I I don't know what he's doing. I still don't know what he's doing. But you know what I do know is that he is faithful. 
And that we have to be willing to take a step to trust him and to do what he's asking us to do, even if it doesn't make sense, even if the world is telling us different wisdom, even if, you know, really you should just do this. It might be kind of long, but I'm pretty sure it'll work out if you do this. You have to say, no, I don't know. It might not work out if I do it, but I'd much rather just trust Jesus and let him figure it out. Because I'm not that good. I can't make it happen on my own. And you're not either whether you like it or not. So none of us can make it happen. None of us can make our lives work without Jesus. We might be able to make it work, but it's going to end in disaster. It might end, it's not going to end up quite like David's did, but it will end up poorly one way or another. And so the decision for all of us, or every single one of us, is when everything is falling apart, when things are going wrong, we have to be sure that we are going to lean on the Lord and trust Him and trust His faithfulness, even when we have no idea how this is going to end. We have no idea what the next thing is going to be. We have no idea what the next step is going to do. We don't know what the next 10 years are going to look like. We just say, Lord, I have no idea, but I trust You, and I want to go where You're leading. And if we do that... Everything will work out perfect. No, that's not what will happen. It might. I wish that it would. But what I do know is that when we finally stand before the Lord one day at the end of time, we will be thankful and say, yes, that was worth it. Because He is so faithful, even when it doesn't look like it, even when no one else is, and even when we are faithless. He is faithful. And we have to trust Him. I'll close this in prayer. Lord, I just, I I thank you that you are a faithful God. Lord, I thank you that even when I blow it, even when David blows it, when your people just totally mess everything up, Lord, that you do not throw us away. That you continue to pursue us, to love us, and to hold us tight, and to be faithful even as we're faithless. Lord, would we trust you better? Lord, I pray that as we as we leave this place, whenever we leave today, as we go out back into our into our lives, that Lord, that this week, that when things start to fall apart, because they will, when things don't go according to our plan, God, would you give us all the strength to trust you instead of to trust in our own abilities that we can make it work? Lord, just help us trust you. Help us to believe, and to rest on your faithfulness. And we pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.